Shadow Talk. Hello and welcome to Shadow Talk, a weekly roundup of this week's threat intelligence. In this week's episode, Cisco Smart Install Client for Exploited in Disruption Attack, Information Leak Vulnerability Discovered in Microsoft Outlook, and it's that time of year again, new hacktivist activity as part of Op Icarus and Op Israel. And I'll be digging into the Verizon DBIR and why there's still plenty of reasons to be interested in the RSA conference. Hello, Pod Squad. Joining me to talk about this week's top stories, we've got the reliable Raphael Amado. Hello, Raf. Hi, Mike. And we've got the voracious Van Riper. Hello, Harrison. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, very well, thanks. Let's start with probably the biggest story of the week, and that is the disruptive attack against users in Iran and Russia that leverages a flaw in Cisco's smart install client. Harrison, what was the impetus behind this? Uh, yeah, Mike. So on 7th of April, um, Bleeping Computer reported a campaign disrupting network infrastructure in multiple countries, including Iran and Russia. Uh, the attacks affected internet service providers and data centers by leveraging a protocol within Cisco's smart install client software. Uh, affected devices were reset to their default configurations, and some of the startup con- configuration files uh, began displaying a defacement message uh, referencing the American flag and also referencing some of the news stories surrounding interference in American elections. Oh, how very patriotic of them. Did this exploit any, any vulnerability that we already know about? So the initial reporting stated that CVE 2018-0171, which is a vulnerability affecting Cisco smart install software and enabled remote code execution, was abused in the campaign. However, afterwards it emerged that the attackers actually misused a protocol that was actually present within the smart install software itself. So abuse of the Cisco smart install Client protocol can enable these attackers to adapt trivial file transfer protocol, TFTP server settings, and kind of gather and exfiltrate information. It can also allow them to modify configuration settings as well as manipulate the Cisco iOS software image itself, uh, and then also establish accounts and execute other commands. Right. So it was rather something that was meant to exist within the software, but but just misused by threat actors. Um, Not technically a vulnerability, as you mentioned, but this misuse of the protocol, this isn't unique, is it? We have seen this before, Raf. Yeah, you're right. It's it's been used before. Um, There's some suggestions that advanced actors have used this since around December last year, so in 2017. But it's it's not just sophisticated actors. There's also open source tools for identifying and targeting the smart install protocol. Um, this flaws remained open to misuse from threat groups with varying skill levels and motives. Right. So potentially uh, quite a bit of interest to attackers then. This particular instance targeted users in Iran and Russia. And with the flaw, I mean, that potentially allows attackers with any range of capability to, to leverage it. Given this, is there anything that organizations should care about in particular and would we be able to give any tips for how you might want to protect yourself? So according to Shodan, which is like an internet of things search engine, 
So that's indicated that around 190,000 devices were open to TCP port 4786, which is the one used by the Cisco Smart Install. Um, I mean, the destructive outcome that we've talked about here in terms of how people are using it to perform defacement attacks or more disruptive attacks. So I think it's probably going to be attractive to hacktivist actors or threat groups who want to do some sort of disruption or sabotage. I think there's a realistic possibility that these type of campaigns using this type of flaw because it's 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 been around for a while and people haven't patched it. It's going to continue for some time, I'd say maybe for the next few months. But there are things you can do. So system administrators, um, they can disable the smart install function. They can limit access to TCP port 4786 to mitigate this exposure. I know Cisco's also released a security advisory on it. So I'd recommend anyone using this to to have a look at that as well. Okay. You speculated um, that it could be used by hacktivists, and I want to tease everybody with mentions of hacktivists. I know people get excited to talk about hacktivist campaigns, so hold your groans because we will be talking about that shortly, but more of that after this. We want to talk about an actual vulnerability, and that's one in Microsoft Outlook. I mean, given the widespread use of Outlook throughout every business sector, and the fact that this vulnerability isn't that hard to exploit. We you know, may have seen some attackers using this particular vulnerability. Harrison, in as few words as possible, can you describe what's been going on here with this Microsoft Outlook vulnerability? So yeah, so I'll try to explain it in as few words as possible. Um, so basically the vulnerability exists in the way that Microsoft Outlook renders rich text formatted email messages which contain object linking and embedding content. So basically OLE objects. Specifically, an attacker could hypothetically trigger Outlook to initiate a server message block connection to a malicious server by remotely hosting that OLE object there and embedding it within an email. If the user opens or previews that email, the OLE object is requested and this authenticates the client with the server resulting in a credential hash being sent to the attacker as well as some other system information. Uh, Researchers have demonstrated that successful exploitation of this vulnerability, which is CVE 2018-0950, combined with another exploit, um, and then the example that was given was actually a denial of service vulnerability, which is CVE 2017-0016, and this essentially caused the system which was being targeted to crash and start kind of cause that denial of service attack. Okay. So, so CV 2018-0950, one to potentially prioritize in, in your patching. Have we seen this particular vulnerability exploited in the wild at all? Uh, no, not yet, but attackers have used similar techniques in their attempts to gather credential hashes in the past. Uh, the U.S. Computer Emergency Response Team Uh, sent out an advisory in March of this year on the targeting of U.S. critical national infrastructure and detailed a method used by alleged uh, Russian actors, which involved spear phishing emails, abusing legitimate Microsoft Outlook functions for retrieving documents from remote servers using SMB. So it it was something similar. So there are several steps that can be taken to mitigate against uh, exploitation of this vulnerability. Uh, In addition to implementing the patches that were released by Microsoft, inbound and outbound SMB connections to to the network perimeter can be blocked. 
blocking TCP ports 445, 137, 139, and blocking UDP ports 137 and 139 uh, should effectively mitigate against this. Attackers have also recently tried to use SMB to fetch malicious payloads uh, from remote servers. So blocking those connections would also serve as a mitigation for this tactic. Okay, thank you so much, Harrison. Some great tips there and, and some background on this particular vulnerability. Now, what everybody's waiting for, let's, let's return to talk about hacktivism. Because I know it's tempting to underplay kind of hacktivist activity, but let's have a bit of a roundup because this is the time of year where we do tend to see an escalation in activity. And it can be a concern for organizations that are in those affected industries and, and geographies as well. Raf, there's been a couple of announcements made by a couple of campaigns. Uh, do we want to talk about those? There's two, Op Icarus and Op Israel. Sure thing. Uh, let's take Op Icarus first, I guess. So yeah, Op Icarus was first launched in 2016, and there have been various phases and iterations of, of this operation. So it started out as quite a coordinated campaign against large financial institutions, but over the years, it sort of splintered and lost a bit of its potency. We've now seen many different offshoots and iterations often going on at kind of the same time. And it's meant targeting has become a lot less focused and at times actually quite random. I think in the last last bait of our Picarus attacks, we were seeing organizations in quite a wide variety of industries, some quite not very big organizations either. So we're talking about small retail companies based in like Florida, for example, which is very different from when Opicarus started out and it was going after big commercial banks, um, Central banks said they wanted to go to Federal Reserves as well. So you can see how, compare it to what happened in 2016 to what's going on now, how it's changed a lot. Now, in terms of what's new, so we're seeing a new wave of activity, at least an intent for a new wave of activity. So over the course of this week, there was an operational announcement calling for a new phase of the campaign, which has been scheduled for June 2018. Now, these announcements haven't stipulated the type of activity that's that's set to occur. Although, given the type of tactics used by hacktivist actors, particularly ones associated with Opicarus, uh, this will probably include denial of service attacks, data breach claims against financial entities. But overall, recent iterations of Opicarus, as I've said, have attracted quite low levels of involvement. It's, it has been petering out. So if we're going to give some sort of threat assessment of this at the minute, I would say it's, it's probably very low risk. If you're in the financial services industry, you might still want to obviously look at your DDoS protection, uh, look at what controls and precautionary measures you're putting in place around this. But this isn't the opicarus that we saw in 2016. I'm going to put my neck out on the line there. Right. And is it worth recapping if organizations are likely to be in the affected industries, what can they do to detect activity that may be targeted towards them? I, I think we often take that for granted about how as an organization you can respond to that. So if we look at the general tactics, the techniques and procedures used by these type of hacktivist actors, that can give you a good indication of what you should be doing. Firstly, it's in terms of sort of preemptive monitoring. The hacktivists generally communicate um, publicly in term, using Twitter and social media. They use IRC channels and other mediums as well to communicate with each other and coordinate their attacks. But their attacks are usually publicized on Twitter and Facebook their target lists are put on Twitter and Facebook as well. So that's a good place to start to see if your organization is on there because what will happen is 
the hacktivist group will put their target list online and then anyone who's affiliated to that campaign can then go look on there, choose a target. And on those lists as well, they usually have links to how to run the tools needed to perform like an SQL injection attack or a denial of service attack using something like Slow Loris. So looking at where these, where these hacktivists communicate is a good is a good starting point. As I said, in terms of the actual tactics they use for their attacks, denial of service. So looking at what defenses you have in place for that. They like to do data breaches as well. A lot of the time it's misconfigured websites or actually in reality, a lot of the time as well, they will release information which is actually open source or has been public before. So looking out to see what data you might have exposed out there would be another good place to, to start. Yeah, and just on those, those TTPs, I mean, this is wildly speculative, but if we talk about defacement and denial of service, I mean, we have just talked about the impacts of Cisco Smart Install Client floor and the Microsoft Outlook vulnerability offering additional ways to carry that technique. So just because they focus on specific techniques, it, it doesn't mean that the tools being used to do so are on pretty uh, cutting edge. Yeah, I guess it'll be interesting to see if... Um hacktivist actors related to Opicurus or some of these other hacktivist campaigns start incorporating some of these maybe newer or less widely used techniques. Yeah. So that's Opicurus. There's also been Op Israel. And the talk of all these tools reminds me of um, last year when during Op Israel, um, you actually had some disruptive acts against the group behind Op Israel as well, when people were sharing malware that they were saying would help them with their campaigns, but it was actually a remote access Trojan targeting the hacktivist actors themselves. So just because they're sharing tools doesn't mean uh, they're all on the same side. Um, with that, what exactly is Op Israel and what's been the announcement? So Op Israel is, again, a hacktivist campaign that usually happens around about, well, at least it kicks off and there's high peaks of activity around the 7th of April and the weeks before and after that. That's because it coincides with the eve of Holocaust Remembrance Day. And Op Israel is motivated, it's a very, it's a very political campaign, um, first run by the anonymous collective affiliated with groups in support of Palestine. So it's, it's rooted in the, in the Middle Eastern conflict there. Again, like a bit like Op Icarus, the general techniques are denial of service claims, website defacements, data leaks as well. What we've seen recently are claims of website defacements, as well as some leaked databases belonging to 83 Israeli universities. However, it seems like, again, that type of information was actually available on open sources. So they're just basically re reusing this information, putting it up on PACE sites and, and claiming victory there. In terms of the organizations that are usually affected by this, they tend to be particularly concentrated in Israel. Israeli government entities, educational entities, uh, military, defense, but also sometimes there's been attacks or at least claimed attacks against organizations that are seen to be overly closely affiliated with Israel as well. But again, in terms of the target listing, it's usually mainly based on Israeli entities. So who's excited for RSA this coming week? <laughs> What's that, Harrison? I certainly am, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's become a little bit trendy for people to bash on the conference as a bit of a, a vendor fest. But let's add some balance because I genuinely believe it still offers quite a bit of value. Um, the talks themselves, 
some of them look incredibly interesting. You've got topics which are genuinely of interest and useful to organizations, like things on investment metrics, things like that. You've got the big topic GDPR and how people can go about preparing for that. The eternal problem of recruiting and being able to retain staff as well, as well as things on third-party risk, cloud security, and, and a broader national security as well. Actually, Rick Holland, our CISO, has collated some of these talks and listed them in a, in a recent blog. So check that out if you want to get a list of good talks that you can attend at this week's RSA conference. Um, but it's not all about talks. You've also got loads of innovation going on. You've got the innovation sandbox, which you've got all of these new startups with fascinating technology, which can help you to solve a bunch of your problems. So you can go along to that and track different technologies that are emerging um, and help you to solve uh, your own challenges as well. So do check that out. And hey, the parties aren't too bad either. Do come along to ours on Tuesday, which is a security leaders party. Got a big old space uh, above the Metreon. Um, so that should should be pretty awesome. Register that on our website, or we should be able to put the registration link within the podcast description as well. So if you fancy having a little knees up, do come along. Or if you just want to come up and troll Michael Marriott for his presenting of this podcast, it's a good opportunity to, to meet him in person as well. Yeah, what, what more incentive would you need? I think it's also a good time now probably to talk about some new research. So the Verizon DBR report came out this week. That's the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report, which comes out every year. This year's report includes around 53,000 security incidents, over 2,000 data breaches across so many different countries. I think we've got 65 countries in there, 67 contributors. So it's, a, it's quite a lengthy, but also really, really useful report. Yeah, there's some. There's a lot of content in uh, across the 50 pages, and would encourage people to check it out if they could. Kind of things that they discuss include ransomware. That's the the top flavor of uh, malicious software from 2017, and uh, I think 39% of the cases of malware were ransomware. So yeah, Mike, you're right to point out ransomware, but I think organizations should also have have wider plans for extortion attempts more generally. So we're also talking about DDoS extortion, intellectual property extortion. Like we've said before, you should have playbooks for all these different types of scenarios and your business continuity planning should take into account all these different types of, of incidents that could take place. One other thing that I would potentially draw out of this report is, uh, is this nice little quote where 68% of breaches took months or longer to detect. So on the one hand, this obviously highlights the typical lag time between detecting breaches and then when they actually occurred. But it also makes me think about this idea of real-time intelligence that gets bandied about the industry a lot. And it's something that came up in a recent conversation I was having with Rick, our CISO. So he says that the majority of these are actually really real-time false positives which actually create more work for your internal teams, for your security teams. So the thing to highlight here is, is quality reporting. That's actually what's, what's most important, quality intelligence. So this is ideally timely and gets to you quickly after an event. But what I think most of us would say is that we're probably happy to wait a few more hours or a day to get actually usable intelligence that won't overload the security team. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a, that is a great point. Um, yeah, do check out the 
writing DBIR uh, because it's a, it's, a, it's a great report and there's so much content in there that you can you can operationalize within your own company. Okay, that's all for today. Any key takeaways from from yourselves? So going back to the DBIR report, what I really like about it is that there are a lot of good examples of how to present and communicate threat intelligence in there. And one recommendation would be to create your own version of this report, at least try and take elements of it which you quite enjoy to by using your own intrusion and breach data. I mean, what's more important and relevant than what's actually going on within your own organization? And these Verizon reports have really great examples of graphics, charts, tables that you can incorporate into your own tailored reports. And then you can use these to communicate the threat landscape to your executives. And as we know, this threat, your executives, your board, they're very different target audience from a threat intel or a security analyst. So the risks and the outcomes that you're talking about, they need to be communicated in quite a different way. And I think the Verizon report is a really good way of doing that. Yeah, and then being able to do it year on year as well, so you can track trends over time, that can be a quite compelling way to provide uh, trending metrics to uh, management and the board. Exactly, exactly. Okay, Harrison, what have you got for us? Yeah, so my my key takeaway this week um, revolves around the Outlook vulnerability that we discussed earlier. Uh, I really wanted to highlight this one because it is fairly easy to um, exploit. And although we haven't seen any attacks just yet, I think following this disclosure, there may be some activity around it um, within the next few months to a year. So definitely wanted to keep an eye on uh, just that CVE again, CVE 2018-0950. Okay, thank you so much, Harrison. And thank you to Raf. That is all we have time for uh, this week. Thanks for listening to this week's Shadow Talk. To learn more about our research and our activities at RSA, visit digitalshadows.com.